This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. This side of the grave and this side of the consummation of all things, we are seeking to call people back from the jaws of death and eternal punishment and calling them to seek life. Hello, welcome to Theology on the Go. I'm joined as always by James Dolezal, and today we are going to talk between the two of us on a topic that is a difficult one in some ways, a neglected one in many circles, uh, and that's the topic of what the Bible teaches regarding hell. I know we like to avoid this topic sometimes, particularly in our day and age, but we can't, and the Bible doesn't. And so we want to tackle it today. James? Well, I'm going to I'm going to take the position in this conversation and I'll put some of the, put most of the questions toward you okay. um, and maybe we'll we'll banter about some of that. But maybe we should start with just with the big question of um, what is hell and why is there a hell? Well, those are those are great ones to start with. Let me start with the the what is. There's there's a little bit of language work we need to do to get to this term that we use so often, hell. In the New Testament, there are really three different words that are used that describe hell. Some of them don't always refer to what we think of as hell, but sometimes do. So, for instance, the first word is this word, Hades. And sometimes this is just referring to the place of the dead, but sometimes it does have this negative connotation, the place where the dead who are unbelieving and rejecting God go and are punished. There's a second word, Gehenna, and sometimes this is even transliterated as Gehenna in your New Testament. And this is one that is consistently used for a place of punishment and torment. And then finally, there's this third word that's that's used by Peter and Second Peter Tartaros, and this is a, a Greek term that again refers to a, a place of of punishment. So we do have three different words, but we're talking about one concept, one place, and that's hell. And simply put, it's a place of eternal punishment for those who have rejected God and his son and his word. And in a sense, that brings us to one of the purposes of it, which is it is a place of punishment. In an ultimate sense, it's its purpose is to highlight God's holiness and God's glory, but in terms of people, it's a place of punishment. Um, maybe I should raise a couple questions on that because sometimes I, I think it's it's common, especially in our culture now, to think of punishment as um, discipline in mm-hmm. the sense of teaching or correction mm-hmm. so that um, you mentioned hell as a place of eternal punishment, um, and I can think of some biblical texts that say that these will go away into eternal punishment. Yes. Matthew, uh, Jesus says in uh, Matthew twenty-five. Yep. Um, but if it's punishment, is this punishment in the sense of retribution, or is this punishment in the sense of um, remedial or corrective or rehabilitative? Because I think it's common today. I mean, if you talk to people about what's the purpose of of prisons or of punishment enacted right. in a legal system, um, more and more the idea of retribution is um, is offensive to people in our culture, and the idea of remedial or rehabilitative discipline is more attractive. 
Is hell a place of rehabilitation? Is it discipline in that respect? It's not. I mean, it is it is punishment in the retributive sense. It's the time, if I can put it this way, the time for people to repent, the time for people to rehabilitate, if we want to use that language, that's not exactly scriptural language, but is is right now. And so, no, that's not the purpose of hell. You're right. There are some popular conceptions of hell that that make it seem that way, or at least sort of hint in that direction, but that's not at all what the scriptures teach. The scriptures teach that it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that to face judgment. And part of that judgment involves these concepts, this place that the Bible teaches us about. You mentioned a few moments ago that it was for the manifestation of God's glory. Maybe you could say a little more on why it is that we believe that God's glory is manifested through both the reality and the everlasting permanence of the condition of those in hell. God is holy and God is without fault. He cannot abide sin. And those truths of God have to be maintained and are maintained. And those are, we might say, aspects of his glory, of who he is as God. And so, hell as an eternal punishment is the only appropriate display of that against sin for those who do not repent and trust in his provision, those who reject him. And so it's, it's, I think to the extent, the extent to which you understand the holiness of God will determine the extent to which you, you see the need for this biblical concept of hell. That's, that's one answer. The, the other answer I would say is this, it's, it's also because of God's love. Sometimes people will argue that because God is a loving God, he can't send people to hell. And that's a mistake on a number of levels. Of course, we always need to define love biblically. And I think in many cases when people say those kinds of things, they're not doing that. But I would also say this, even in the way we normally define love, um, and the way we normally think of it, which is fairly limited, uh, how loving would it be for God to look upon sin and simply just dismiss it? When you confront great evil, the evil of the Holocaust, the evil of, you know, the the African slave trade, something like that, these these just horrific things, things things that we even hear about today going on, uh, to simply dismiss it and say, well, God should just just let those people off the hook. There should be no punishment for sin, no retribution, no retribution. It does a tremendous uh, disservice. Isn't even a strong enough word. It, it it's 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 a tremendous, that would be a tremendous injustice. Right. So I think there's, there's a sense in which this highlights the holiness of God, the awfulness of sin, but it also highlights God's love for people who are sinned against. Right. Who are, who are his creatures created in his image. So when we think about hell and God's love, we often juxtapose God's wrath or his holy opposition to evil 
to God's love. And yet there's a certain sense in which God's manifestation of wrath and holy opposition to sin is in fact uh, a feature, so to speak, of his love. Just like hating wickedness in every form is itself a piece of loving the beautiful and the good and the true um, of being just. There is no there is no justice where there is not um, a jealousy mm-hmm. for that which is lovely and good and true. And that jealousy will often, and it should take the form of opposition to that which opposes what is good and lovely and true. So, yeah. that this, so we shouldn't be playing on no, wrath right. and love as if they were these kind of um, evil twins right. that, that sort of awkwardly sit together in God. Yeah, one of the ways in which you manifest your love for your children is that you want to defend them against something, some danger that they might be in. I mean, that's, that's one of the roles in a sense that you have is this kind of protection. And if you didn't, if you were indifferent to the protection of your own children, I think what we would say is, you don't love them. In addition, let me say one more thing. I find it very striking that the places in Scripture that talk most about uh, God's judgment and wrath, and, and actually the places in Scripture that talk the most about the future in general, are places in which there's great suffering. So, for instance, one of the key texts for our doctrine of hell is in Second Thessalonians. And at the beginning of it, Paul very clearly talks about how God's wrath is going to be poured out in 2 Thessalonians 1 on on those who have opposed him and and those who have opposed the Thessalonians. Or you think about Daniel chapter 12 where it talks about the resurrection of the righteous and then the resurrection as well uh, to those who will be judged eternally. And, And there is a sense of comfort that this provides, a sense of feeling loved that this doctrine provides to those who are God's own people. The Thessalonians were supposed to read about the judgment against God's enemies in their city and feel a measure of comfort for that. And so that's, that's an expression of love in a way that would be similar to, again, to extend the analogy of you and one of your kids, where if you, if you said to them, don't worry, no one can get to you because I'm here to protect you. I'm here to, uh, make sure that you're taken care of, even sort of physically protect you. Uh, that's extremely comforting. And I think one of the reasons that we neglect the doctrine of, of hell, and this is probably true of our neglect of the doctrine of heaven, is because in general, in our particular moment, and I'm just speaking of the two of us, not necessarily of our listeners, life is pretty easy. And we're not confronted on a daily basis with all these massive displays of evil and wickedness in the world in which we live in 21st century western culture great evils done against us are much fewer than what people historically have right. experienced in right. their lives not that not that there aren't obviously great great and horrendous evils even in our culture and in our time um, but we've been fairly shielded from that and so it, it can be kind of easy to feel like I don't have any sort of great um, cause to go and seek retribution and justice and right. the, the setting right of wrongs because perhaps we've been relatively to uh, relative to others in history been sinned against 
and and grossly offended less than others have. And so we kind of lose the sense of we almost have got it to where the idea is if you seek retribution, that there's something unworthy and unholy about that. I, I don't know. Perhaps you've seen these uh, instances where somebody uh, somebody is uh, wronged by you know maybe someone has killed a family member, right? Um, and they will they will stand and say you know I forgive that person and I will grant I, that is a that is a magnanimous act of great charity and of and of mercy shown to that individual. I think sometimes what happens though is we can lose the sense of if we do not seek retribution for that crime, uh, we lose the sense that it wasn't only you who was sinned against, but this person who was, you know, who was also sinned against needs some kind of restitution made for that crime committed. That, that you yeah. could actually seek retribution, and then it would be actually a holy thing to well, see. Well, that, that's right. And, and, and I think, too, there may be occasions where we can extend that kind of forgiveness, but we can do that as Christians precisely because the Lord says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And so there may be many, many occasions in our lives where we're sinned against and we say, it is not for me to exact right. that kind of vengeance, but to say to someone who is a survivor of a concentration camp, well, God has received Hitler into his presence and he's enjoying the blessings of heaven. Even it is, I mean, we, we, we instinctively know that there's a kind of grotesqueness to that, right. um, to that kind of picture. So I wanted to add one other uh, thing to the, to this discussion as we're thinking about hell. And that is um, the perspective of the saints in heaven. And I'm thinking here, particularly uh, after the after the culmination of all things, uh, after the second return of Christ, when the sun has set on the day of salvation, when it mm-hmm. no longer is the day of salvation, but we are now entering the eternal state, what would be the difference, would you say, between the perspective of believers then with regard to those uh, in hell and us now? Because I think sometimes we get troubled with this idea of the eternality of hell would seem to, in a certain sense, be disruptive of the bliss of heaven. Wouldn't mm-hmm. the wouldn't our eternal life be a little less blessed if there is, in fact, eternal punishment, right. as it were, running right. alongside it? Well, one of the things that, and this is a little bit of an argument from silence, but I think it's a strong one, is that one of the things that's interesting is when you see people, when we get these glimpses of heaven, for instance, in the book of Revelation, or when we get even even a glimpse of someone being punished, like the story that Jesus tells of the rich man at Lazarus, one of the striking features there is neither one, neither the group that is praising the Lord, nor even the rich man is saying, this is unjust this is unfair, this isn't right. You know, in a sense, they all seem to recognize the rightness of it and the way in which that actually showcases God's glory. The the rich man, he wants some relief from it. Can I have a bit of cold water? And and, and he wants to make sure, and this this should be our abiding passion too, he wants to make sure that his, his friends and loved ones don't end up in the same place that he is but he's not saying this is just way I, out of proportion. I've been done wrong. Exactly. Um, exactly. I shouldn't be in this place. I don't deserve this. Right. And it seems, it seems to me that that's the perspective that we get is after death, there is a sort of 
everyone sees the fundamental justice of what God has done and how God has, has operated even, even with respect to, to them. And so the rich man doesn't say, how could you possibly send any of my brothers here? He says, can you please send someone to tell them, to warn them, to, you know, implore them. And, right. uh, and that's, that's a very different perspective. It seems to me. I think also there's a difference in our position currently uh, this side of the grave and this side of the consummation of all things where we are seeking to to call people back from the jaws of death and eternal punishment and calling them to to seek life and to turn out of the broad road that leads to destruction and turn into the narrow road that leads unto life. Uh, and our perspective currently, particularly with regard to our contemporaries who are not on the way to heaven, but are on the way to hell, and we want them to turn out of the way of destruction, uh, we are, our urgency uh, is, with, is with a hope that just right. as it was for us individually, that the gospel will take hold in their lives and that through the power of the Spirit, they may be yet regenerated and the hell toward which they are heading turns out not to be their end. Yeah. Um, and I think that evangelistic yeah. perspective that we have now is something that it's hard. I guess it's difficult for us to imagine a state in which we're no longer in that evangelistic situation, but we're in the eternal state on the other side of of this moment, uh, so to speak. The thought of anyone going to hell disturbs me now. Um, will I be, and this is the question of, will I be disturbed in the same way when I am in the eternal state? And I have to believe, I'm thinking of a sermon Jonathan Edwards preached, um, and I'll garble the title, but it was one of those big, long, rambling New England sermon titles. It was something like, um, something like the torments of those in hell, no occasion of grief to the saints in heaven. I, mean, right. I can't imagine putting that right. on the church marquee, uh, but I'm not recommending it. But he, he made an argument in there that we need to believe and trust that we will be so transformed in that day um, and we will so see the justice of God with a clarity that even currently we don't see it even as believers, that any distress we imagine that we might have in glory because of those in perdition will simply be removed and will be given eyes to see that we don't currently have and an understanding that we're on the, as it were, the other side of the rescue mission of the gospel. Yeah. You know, we are told that the Lord will wipe away every tear from our eyes at that time. And so I'm sure that the bliss of, of being with the Lord in the new heavens and new earth will certainly outweigh those concerns. You know, it is striking when you talked about the evangelistic aspect of it. And I think this is critical. Uh, you can see in church history, when people abandon the doctrine of hell, they abandon missions. Hmm. You know, Jesus speaks more about hell than anyone else in the Bible. And yet this is the glorious thing. Uh, and yet on the cross, as he looks to that sinner who had lived his life, in rebellion against God, he's able to say to him, because of his belief, today you'll be with me in paradise. And so, people uh, gloriously are saved at the very end of their life. And even that, that thief on the cross was going to be in paradise with the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus was not shy about preaching on hell, but he was also very open about the fact that anyone who comes to him will not be cast out and he will be raised up on the last day. It's a good word. 
Well, this is a difficult topic. You said that, and I said it at the beginning, but we need to talk about these things because we need to uh, tell the truth. And part of telling the truth is explaining to people the warnings that the scriptures give, the warnings that Jesus give. If we, if, if we say that Jesus is Lord, that his word is truth, then that means even the parts that we find personally uncomfortable need to be proclaimed clearly. So thanks for taking a couple minutes to talk about it today. Yeah, thank you. And thank you as listeners for listening to another episode of Theology on the Go. We hope that this is helpful to you and that you'll recommend it to others. We also know that some of you have the capacity and perhaps the interest in supporting us. And so if you'd like to support the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, you can do that on AllianceNet.org or via PlaceForTruth.org. Send us suggestions, send us feedback, and please continue to recommend us to others if you find it helpful. And thanks, as always, for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.